Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cracking Addiction. My name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong, and once again, we have the good Dr. Laura Petrachek. Laura, I thought we'd continue our discussion from last episode and have a chat about why some patients feel that they don't need to achieve abstinence and why they might feel they can control their substance use or their drinking. What do you think is going on there? Well, I think there's a few uh, psychological aspects going on there, Fergal. One is that Mm -hmm. some clients have a cognitive distortion or they're in denial that they can control their drinking or drug use. Mm -hmm. And especially if they've had times where they could actually control their drinking and drug use, they'll grab on that information instead of the information that's to the contrary. Um, Yeah, yeah. So they're relying on past experience. Yes, which is maybe 50-50. 50 they controlled it, 50 they didn't, or maybe 80-30, Yes. Yeah. Um, But the problem with substance use is that you lose control of your consumption, isn't it? That's one of the diagnostic uh, criteria for substance use disorder. And the... um, the longer that you, you, you swim in that sea, the more likely it is for it to suck you down, isn't it? Yes, the, the likelihood is more of sucking uh, a patient down. However, going back to that cognitive distortion, a lot of times patients are in denial. They don't see it. You know, uh, maybe their family does or their employer, but a lot of times they themselves don't see how they're going down the rabbit hole. So, so we've, we've, we've agreed that there's a cognitive distortion going on. And we've agreed that part of the reason is that they're relying on past, past experience. But that's not surely the whole story. What other reasons are there that uh, permit the existence of this cognitive distortion? Well, uh, put simply, people like to drink. People like the effect. Yeah. They don't want to give it up. <laughs> You know, I mean, that's probably number one. Uh, yeah. Is yeah. People and then there's do. denial, isn't there? Yes. What's the they, underlying What's the underlying root cause of denial? Do you think they don't want to give up their drinking, and they don't want to give up the good feeling that it gives them? You know, minus they don't think about the next day, the hangover, or all the negative consequences. They don't want to give up that "quote unquote" good feeling when they drink and or or that kind of that positive re- rewarding effect is perhaps being used to treat an underlying negative emotion yes there's a lot of reasons why people drink it could be underlying negative emotions it could be a whole host of issues or situations or past experiences that they want to continue to drink and suppress those feelings or experiences so how do we how do we approach treatment in that to in someone who's in that phase where they're they're engaged but they're not they're not acknowledging the need for abstinence how do you actually approach that kind of patient well i think one of the first uh, courses of action is using harm reduction report um a harm reduction approach or motivational interviewing, you know, Mm -hmm. so taking a step back from the complete abstinence track and meeting the client where they are. 
like it's interesting. I just had a client before um, our podcast who said, Dr. P, I looked at your book and, you know, I got to tell you, I just don't see me as being completely abstinent. So are you going to still be able to work with me or should I find another therapist? Because she goes, the more I read about the 12 steps, the more I kind of had a recoil reaction. And so I said, yes, we don't have to do total abstinence. So I do Mm. think it's important to start where the patient is. And if they're ambivalent and don't think they're alcoholic, then we need to start there. Because it's very frightening, isn't it, for someone who's relying on alcohol for whatever reason to suddenly contemplate life without it. It's, it's, it's like jumping into a cold bath, isn't it? That's just awful. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. like, like you said, jumping in a cold bath, jumping into a cliff. I mean, one of my clients once said, I know alcohol is killing me, Dr. P, but I know it. I, this is a known factor. I don't know if I stop what that world's going to look like and it scares the shit out of me. And so I'd rather go down this destructive path. And that to me was illuminating, but also bad. So when I, when I uh, meet patients who say to me that they, they want to achieve controlled drinking, which is, which is, uh, you know, when I hear controlled drinking, I, I actually hear, I don't actually can or, or I cannot contemplate abstinence. I I sometimes feel that that really it is a, it is a an, a, an uh, a cognitive distortion that and really I have to join them where they are as you say and I'm looking for that opportunity to then have the conversation with them about well you tried controlled drinking where did it get you what's the alternative option do you ever come across that that kind of patient. Yes. As I stated earlier, I'm working with one right now. So my approach uh, right now with where she's at is to have her keep a journal, an alcohol journal of what was going on before she picked up that drink, how much she drank, what did she drink, and how did she feel afterward? And so part yeah. of it is a lot of times patients have no idea what, how much they really consume. There's even yeah. denial. There's no denial right there. But it's them, yeah. so it's using their own information they gave me to then say, okay, well, you you, know, you wanted to have four drinks a week, and last week you had 10. So what do you make of that? What do you, how is this working for you? Um, or yeah. do you think it's working for you? So it's helpful. It's more helpful if they come to the conclusion of, wow, this isn't working for me. It helps break yeah. that denial. Yeah. The other thing I often think about when when I consider that the, the the goal of abstinence it's it's a negative goal for some people, isn't it? Because people people will say my goal will be to not drink. Mm-hmm. When really we know that negatively framed goals are not as good as positively framed goals, and so you know I I think moving that moving that shifting from I don't want to drink to I want to be a sober I want to achieve abstinence I think is an important part of the journey. Um, and I also think that it's, it's, it's a journey that is so frightening. And I think there's two things that I, that I think about when I approach this is, first of all, I've got to understand what the driver is for the alcohol. And then the second, second step is to actually start breaking down the very next step, 
Because if you start thinking of the, the mountain that you've got to climb, you lose sight of the step in front of you and you stumble. Yeah. So really, my focus in helping these patients is understanding why, what utility does the, the substance give them? And what is the next step, then the next step, then the next step? Now, the utility for people, we've, we've already agreed that, you know, negative emotions, trauma, but, the, the, you know, it, we, we have to acknowledge the impact of trauma in people's lives and, and also potentially other, other perhaps impulse control disorders that, that, that are going on. How would you, uh, how would you deal with trauma in, the, in this context? Well, before I answer that question, I have a question to your uh, commentary <laughs> now. Um, so you're saying, Fergal, that, you know, to work with the client, uh, to take the first step, what would, what would be your first step with that client? Okay, that's a very good question. So in, in my practice, what I would do is basically I say to people, I'm not asking you to quit drinking right now. Right? All I'm asking you is to commit to seeing me repeatedly. Engagement. So that's got to be the first step. And if people want to fade, if people want to fade, I'm happy for them to fade. And I'm happy to walk with them as they fade. So basically, I will suggest that they actually cut down by one drink a day. Or if they if they want to just cut down cut down by one drink a week, but keep an accurate diary. And you know, I, I know that it's the the key thing is honesty. So if I build a space within which people uh, are actually able to discuss openly their failures as well as their successes, then we will actually get an honest picture of what's going on. And and so, you know, there has to be that time when. You create an honest, safe space to discuss progress, and if and if patients can actually start managing their progress, and they, if if reductions are possible, that's great, that's great. But then at some point, if progress is not being made, then I have to ask the question: Well, actually, do you need an alcohol detox? Do you have such severe dependency that you just cannot actually get over this without becoming sick? And then that's when I can uh, arrange an alcohol detox. The trick about an alcohol detox, however, is to actually maintain abstinence after it. But it is literally one day at a time, one step at a time, and engagement, and engagement not just with me, their doctor, but engagement with AOD counseling, with psychological counseling to deal with all of the other background underlying drivers of substance use, plus you know, you know, the, the, the trauma, as I've mentioned, and also peer support networks, because there's one thing that I do know is, you know, you can't raise it. It takes a village to raise a child. It takes a village to achieve sobriety, I think. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me to have them not necessarily commit to abstinence, but commit to seeing you each week. I like that because then that's more likely they're going to come back, you know, yeah. and work with you. Yeah. So in my professional experience, a lot of times, if I kind of go head on into working with the client, into their trauma, I've seen a lot more relapse happen. So now um, I'm usually waiting, you know, so they could get the skills and concepts together and get some kind of baseline of sobriety before tackling that trauma. So, for example, I had a patient who, um, on her own, read the book, um, 
Basil Welk. Yeah. The, okay. So she decided basically she was, you know, on her own doing this trauma work. And um, she had only shared about reading this book at the very end. And then surprise, surprise, or not a surprise, the next week she told me she relapsed. So I think two things, working with a patient that has trauma, we've also have to stay very close, you know, in terms of uh, our support or getting a support system for them. But ultimately I find it's better. And this client had almost two years of recovery, but I would have told her had I known she was reading the book, it's too soon. It's just too soon. I would be afraid of relapse. And unfortunately that's what happened. There are, there are those that would say that you need to acknowledge at the very least and, and accept the fact that there is trauma in people's lives. Uh, you can't, you can't um, ignore it during a recovery process. Oh, I'm not necessarily saying ignore it. I'm more saying, yes, acknowledge it, like you were stating, but not going head on into it. Um, until there's some some stability. Well, I think I, I, for me, for really all substance addictions, you, it's important to understand the drivers. And I think trauma is a huge driver for substance use. It's not the only driver, but it is an important driver. And I, I don't shy away from asking questions about what does the substance do for you and why you know why is it so good for you and i and i don't shy away from asking questions that that allow the patient to express the fact that they feel that they've been traumatized and i suppose when i'm going when i'm chatting about it i i don't you know, I'm not a trauma therapist, so I'm not trying to help them directly with their trauma, which is why I, I, I go back to the fact that it takes a village. So they need to see someone who's a specialist in trauma therapy. But I use some basic principles around it. I don't, uh, you know, we, we I have to show the patient that they're in a safe place. I have to be aware of the of their of their tender points. I have to give the patient a sense of control, and I have to celebrate their their strengths within the fact that they've been, they've, they have suffered because my patients by definition, anyone who sees me after having been traumatized is a survivor, is a, is a success, has got strength. If you manage to get to see someone, you, you need to be congratulated for having the strength to get through that front door. Mm -hmm. So those are my approaches, but I, I don't try and, I don't try and, and well, minimize it, cover it up. I, 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 perhaps this is one of the very few points where I, I might disagree with you in terms of, in terms of actually helping people through recovery. I, I, but I don't do the trauma therapy myself. Okay. So you would refer them out? Mm, it's an interesting point. Yeah. yeah I'm not, I'm, I'm a, I'm a doctor. I, 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 I a specialist in addiction medicine. I'm, I'm not a trauma therapist. So would the treatment be concurrent with yours? Like here's trauma therapy. I believe so. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But do you do do you treat people with trauma? Yes. I do treat people with trauma without necessarily having alcohol or substance use problem. Um, but I'm this is interesting what I'm hearing is, you know, like so one therapist, one clinician as yourself, 
dealing with the alcohol use problem, another therapist dealing with the trauma. I think that might be a better route to have two separate therapists for two separate issues. Clinically, I think that's a sound idea. I suppose it speaks to the idea of dual diagnosis and really one of the, the, key, treat, the key treatment principles for dual diagnosis is that you try and integrate treatment as much as possible and you try and treat the whole person. Um, so, you, you know, one of, the, one of the issues that I've come across is that if you, is you, you're, you know, we're all worried about relapse, but what I'm worried about is a, a lack of progress and or relapse, because if you don't treat both problems or if you don't treat all problems, if you don't address all problems, then eventually, you know, relapse happens much more. Well, I, I believe it happens much more quickly. I I feel that the that um, that um, it's important to give a wraparound service as much as possible, and I'm just thinking, you know, I mean, there's, you know, if someone had an alcohol problem and needed to detox, and they were using alcohol to to help them cope with a significant amount of trauma, I would still offer them an alcohol detox. You know, they'd be going to counselling before they came into hospital, and they'd be going to counselling mm-hmm. afterwards. And I, I wouldn't say. Uh, deal with your trauma before you can deal with the uh, the alcohol. Right, right. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, if we go back to the overarching theme of our conversation today, which is basically, you know, this idea uh, that, that people can live in a phase of denial and, and and that denial can allow people to achieve controlled drinking. There are, however, some people that can actually achieve controlled drinking. You know, we, we, what we're, we, we, they're rare, in my experience, but people can achieve controlled drinking. What's your experience of that? Well, I agree with you. There are people that do. Um, I remember early on in my recovery and one of my uh, friends in recovery decided, you know, AA wasn't for her and that she wasn't an alcoholic and decided to not go, quote, back out there, but to live her life and drink uh, responsibly, um, as she put it. Mm. And then I ran into her like three or four years later, and, you know, she, her life was okay. She wasn't like, you know, in jail or falling down or, you know. And then most recently it came up with, Another friend of, well, actually, two people I've known in my circle after 10 years of recovery have gone back out or had decided uncontrolled drinking. And for one woman, it's been almost 10 years. And, you know, from all the markers, it seems like she's doing okay. And uh, this other woman, it's been about a year and a half. And she finally said, Laura, I have to tell you, I'm not sober. And I feel like I'm lying to you because when you come visit me, you'll go to a meeting and this is why I'm not going with you. So I appreciate her honesty and, you know, she seems like she's doing okay too. So I don't think, I do believe some people can control their drinking. I I don't think it's a big percentage. I myself would not risk it. I would, I'd have too much to lose, but I do believe some people can. So is there any way of predicting which kind of individual will Uh, manage to achieve it and which won't? That is the $100 question, a million dollar question. Yeah. I mean, who knows? I mean, I'd say for 
you know, these three that I know that went out and did okay, I could probably name 300 who went out and did not do okay. Yeah. I think it's a very yeah. small percentage. It's, and, it's uh, a gamble, isn't it? If we're talking about is. addictions, you know, it, it is a gamble because I, I don't believe that I can predict the person who will manage to do it. But I, yeah. I'm of the opinion of the, that the majority of people will, will not be able to do it. So it's, it's sometimes it's a difficult conversation to have. And really, I suppose the only way to manage that is just to walk with the individual. And as you say at the very beginning, meet them where they are. Right. And, and also go over Oh, excuse me. Yes, and go over some of the uh, potential consequences. So let's say yeah. you pick up that drink. Okay. Uh, since you've gotten sober, you're in a marriage, you're married now, or your marriage is stable. Um, you've, you know, re-engaged with your kids, or there's less estrangement there. You're working things out. Uh, you got a new job. You know, your health is better. You're not, um, your, your kidneys aren't in danger anymore. Now, are you willing to risk all of those uh, successes, you know, and kind of have them um, work that out, you know. And for myself, I kind of have this, um, I don't know what you call it, kind of game, so to speak. Like, if I think about it, one of the things I ask myself, what's something I haven't done in recovery? What's a challenge, um, a positive, not a harmful challenge? that I haven't tried yet. So let's try that before picking up a drink or a drug. And um, mm. so it's skydiving or what? No, it wouldn't be sky. I wouldn't do that anyway. <laughs> but, you know, what's something, what's another quote unquote experience or thrill or something? Because um, like initially for me, it wasn't even my own history that convinced me about not picking up a drink or a drug, but I saw my family how they're drinking, they deteriorated through the years. So that was enough of an experience or enough of a research for me, you know, yeah. that, wow. Okay. I didn't really see it then, but now I see it and it's not worth it to me. Perspective. That's what you've got, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. And if only we could give other people, our clients, perspective. And I think this is where bringing in the family is helpful, you know, um, because it's hard for the, our one client to break that denial on their own. And that's why I like to do, if possible, an intervention with the family members or their family of choice to help them see how drinking and or drugs has affected them. Well, look, Laura, on that sweet note, I think we're going to have to end it because we've run out of time. But I really hope that we can chat again very soon and continue our discussion. Thank you. Thank you, Fergal. And for all the listeners out there, um, please don't forget to look for my book, DBT Workbook for Alcohol and Drug Addiction, on sale at Amazon. Thank you. That's all for today, folks. My name is Dr. Fergal Armstrong, and this has been Cracking Addiction. Cracking Addiction.